All right, good morning and welcome everyone. This is James Orr and this is Real Estate Investor Storytime. And I've got a really crazy story for you this morning. This is going to be a story, I'm not sure how many of these I'm going to do. Um, this is going to be a story about someone doing creative financing. You know, a lot of our other stories so far and a lot of the stories that I have kind of planned for the future are going to be stories about people doing, you know, traditional buy and hold, real estate investing, you know, buying properties with 20% down, 25% down. Uh, some people buying houses as a nomad, buying a property with little or nothing down and moving into the property, living there for a year, converting them to a rental. We're definitely going to do some classes on house hacking. Uh, definitely going to be doing some classes on um, the Burr strategy. But this one is a little bit different. This class, this story, is about Sam, Samuel. Samuel works for the local mobile phone company. Um, makes about $15 an hour. You know, I think that works out to be um, about $250,000, I'm sorry, $2,500 a month, about $3,000 a year. Um, doesn't save much money at all. Um, but is concerned, concerned about um, his future and achieving financial independence. And so he, uh, he decides he's going to use what he's got. He's going to use his skills. He's not a super planner. He, he's not like the type of guy that's going to sit down and write out in detail every little step and make sure he does all the research before beginning. He's, uh, he's kind of like a kind of by the seat of his pants you know, just take action sort of guy. He's got some amazing sales skills, can build rapport, can, uh, you know, talk to people, not afraid of talking to people, loves to outreach and, and be connected. And, uh, and he's going to use his sales skills as a real estate investor. It's kind of unusual compared to most of the other classes we've taught. You know, a lot of the other classes we're talking about buying houses from the MLS um, or in some cases for sale by owner, but you know, mostly MLS type properties. And Sam's taking a completely different route. He does some research online about creative financing. Creative financing where he could use his sales skills in order to acquire rental properties, in some cases with little or nothing down. Kind of like strategies like uh, buying a property where you lease it first from the seller for a period of time, a year, two years, six months, three years, five years. And then eventually you have the option to be able to purchase that property. A, a, what, what some creative financing people would call a lease option, where you lease the property, you have an option to buy it. Or a lease purchase, which is very similar, just slightly different paperwork. A lease purchase is a lease document with a purchase agreement. A lease option is a lease document with a option agreement. And so he, he thinks about some of those strategies. Those seem interesting, and I think he'd use those in the right situation. However, the one that really attracts him is buying properties subject to the existing financing, buying properties subject to. Buying properties subject to is buying a property where the seller deeds you ownership of the property. So you are now the new owner because deed signifies who owns the property. So the seller assigns a deed over to you saying that you are the new owner, but the seller's financing remains in place. If Sam had gone and gotten permission from the seller 
permission for, excuse me, from the lender in order to formally assume the loan, that would be a loan assumption. He'd buy the property and he would formally, with the permission and full approval and some documentation from the lender, get permission to actually take over ownership of the property and the loan. That's a loan assumption. That's not what Sam is deciding to do. Sam is deciding to do some creative financing where he buys the property. And usually this is from sellers that have motivation. It doesn't have to be, but it tends to be. But Sam is going to go find sellers that have some motivation and offer to relieve them of the responsibility of having to make mortgage payments. In some cases, he's going to give them some money for their equity. In some cases, they don't really have much equity, which is why this can be attractive. But somebody, a seller who lost their job or um, you know, got divorced or can no longer afford a property, this might be a good solution for them, especially in a market that's not super hot. And with really low interest rates, this became attractive to Sam. The idea of going in and buying the property, getting the seller to deed them ownership, and starting to make payments on their underlying loan without formally assuming it. This is just, he's buying the property, he knows there's a loan in place, and he's going to buy it and start making payments. And so he goes and he talks to an attorney because you should always talk to an attorney before doing these creative financing type deals to make sure that you're structuring it correctly and legally and properly with the right paperwork. And the attorney explains to him that, you know, in our state, which it's a fictitious state, but, you know, similar to Colorado in some ways, although it could be any state, although certain states they frown upon this. But the attorney says to Sam, says, hey, in this state, you really don't want to structure it subject to. We're going to use the frame, the term subject to, but really what you want to do is you want to give the seller some recourse if you don't pay on their loan. You want to give them the ability to get the property back if you don't keep up your end of the bargain. Uh, it'll keep you out of trouble with the consumer protection regulator, legal type people who may come after you if for some reason you default and the seller says, hey, you know, you bought this property and you, I deeded it to you and now you haven't made the payment and I, there's nothing I can do. So the attorney structures something for them. And of course, you'll want to go talk to your own attorney, make sure that they structure this the way you think. But they structure it as wrap financing, which there just happens to be an agreement about the payments uh, with the seller. And so if Sam doesn't do as he agreed, then the seller can go and foreclose on Sam and get possession of the property back. And that's what RAP financing would allow him to do in this case. And of course, if the seller says, hey, listen, I'd rather do straight up owner financing because they don't have a loan on the property. If Sam you know, does this marketing, does this networking, goes out there and finds some deals and the seller does not have a mortgage on the property at all, the seller can act like the bank and offer Sam straight up owner financing where the seller accepts payments as if they were the bank. Sam didn't even bother going to figure out if he can qualify for loans. He just basically said, I'm going to do this strategy. Uh, I'm not going to try. I'm not going to try to save up 20%. not going to do this nomad thing. I'm living with roommates right now. I'm renting a property. I got, got some roommates, my buds, and uh, we're good. And so he's happy to do that. Okay. So Sam starts with, $3,000 in savings. This is after the attorney. He's got to met, met with the attorney, got his paperwork and everything. After he's all done with the attorney, he's got $3,000. And I, I will tell you, like, you know, omniscient third party, omniscient whatever storyteller looking in, I will tell you, I'm not the biggest fan of his level of reserves. 
uh, he's going to go for it. He's going to take action. He's going to, he's going to do the things he's supposed to do uh, in order to start acquiring properties. But I personally would like to see him have more reserves. Uh, and I'll show you a chart of that here in a little bit. Remind me if I don't. Okay. Gian, you're responsible for telling me if I don't show you the chart of reserves. I've now, I've now uh, given you a job. <laughs> Hope you don't mind. So basically what Sam's going to do, he's starting with, uh, thank you. He's starting with uh, $3,000 in his bank and he's going to hustle. You know, after he's done working at the, the mobile phone store, um, he's going to go and, you know, call on for sale by owners. He's going to do some networking. He's going to do all the manual labor. What I like to refer to as lazy marketing. I'm sorry, as, as poor marketing. Poor marketing is where you have more time than money and you're willing to put in manual labor in order to find deals. Contrast that with lazy marketing. Lazy marketing is where you have more money than time and you're willing to spend money on marketing in order to have motivated sellers coming to you. So in his case, because Sam doesn't have a lot of money saved up, he decides what he's gonna do is he's gonna do poor marketing methods. Networking, if he wants to door knock, I didn't really picture this, but that's an example of it. Um, calling out for sale by owners from Craigslist, putting up ads on Craigslist. You know, maybe he does a little bit of spend, like some bandit signs or something like that. But he's really looking for someone who is motivated and he's willing to go meet with them, build rapport, negotiate terms where he could buy the property with little or nothing down. And as he ends up saving money, he can do more deals where he has some more money to give them. But early on, he has to find deals where they don't need a lot of money because he doesn't have a lot of money. He only has three grand. And so at the beginning, he can do less deals. He's going to go out there and he's going to be searching and he may find amazing deals, but deals that he can't quite do because of his financial situation. You know, he could find a property where he could buy it for, you know, $30,000 discount, $40,000 discount. But for some reason, he may not have the resources to be able to do that. Can't get the loan, uh, doesn't know hard money lenders, um, doesn't have the uh, money that the seller wants to allow him to take over the loan subject to and you know, pay them their share of the equity. So there's, there's some things, or maybe he doesn't have the knowledge yet because he didn't do a lot of research, didn't do a lot of planning. So in this case, he's going out there and he's gonna do some poor marketing methods where he's willing to put in manual labor in order to find these deals. And he's got to find deals where the seller is basically at the end of their rope. They uh, just want to get out from underneath the property. They have a property they can no longer afford. They just want to get out of town. They lost a job, got divorced, um, got promoted. Maybe they're like, Hey, I, you know, I found the love of my life. We're moving in together. I don't need this other house anymore. I just bought it. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of money invested in the property. And yeah, if you want to do it, my other option is to rent it, but it sounds like I'd rather sell it to you where you're responsible for the payments and uh, I'll go ahead and do that. And so that's what Sam is looking for. And ideally what he plans to do, he's going to take these properties that he finds that he acquires subject to the existing financing, which is really fat wrap financing as we discussed. And he is going to then immediately find a tenant buyer, someone who wants to rent the property for six months, a year, two years, three years, and then buy it from him for a pre-agreed upon price. And so he is going to acquire the properties creatively and immediately turn around and offer them to someone else on a lease with option, with a markup. He's gonna make a profit. You know, he's gonna own the property. He's gonna collect a little bit of rent. He's gonna have a little bit of cash flow while he's holding the property. In most cases, we can look at that here in a minute. He's gonna be able to have a little bit of cash flow on the properties. 
he's usually going to get an upfront option fee. And the upfront option fee will help offset some of his acquisition costs in a lot of cases. You know, he may have a month of vacancy or he may have, um, you know, some money that he has to give to the seller. And I've simplified some of the math in our modeling for this. But he's able to go acquire those properties, find a tenant buyer, put the tenant buyer in the property. Tenant buyer is going to occupy the property as a rental for, in our case, I've modeled it as exactly three years. In a perfect world, it would be variable because the chance of that tenant buyer always closing after exactly 36 months is zero. There's, there's, there's like no probability. There's, there's zero chance that a tenant buyer will always close on the property after 36 months. Okay, so it could be that they you know, live in the property for six months and then they close on it. They exercise their option and they buy it from Sam. Or it could be that it goes a year and then the, uh, the tenant buyer says, nope, I, something changed in my situation. I no longer can or want to buy this property. I'm out. And then Sam needs to go find another tenant buyer to put in there, put up another option fee, buy the property from him in a year, two, or three. And so he needs to be flexible in his approach and what happens there. But for the sake of modeling today, and I know it's less than idea, and I'm going to write some new code to make this variable. I didn't have the code to make this variable when I, uh, when I made this scenario but I will in the future, we'll do an update. In this case, we're saying after three years, the tenant buyer actually buys the property uh, from, from Sam and he makes a profit. Maybe make it a little profit on the monthly payments, you know, the, basically the cash flow part of it. And then he's gonna make a profit when he sells the property. And yes, we are taking into account um, sales costs, which in this case, there are no sales costs. He's not actually hiring a real estate agent to sell the property. He's going and finding his tenant buyer himself. He's advertising, you know, property, lease to own, rent to own, uh, lease purchase. He's finding the tenant buyer to come in and give them a small option fee, knowing that they're going to rent for a year, two or three, and then buy it, in this case, three years. Um, so he doesn't have a real estate agent involved. So there's no real estate commissions involved in either the purchase, because he's finding these for sale by owner off market, or on the sale, because he is not actually bringing a real estate agent in uh, to do the sale part of it. He's actually doing it as part of the agreement upfront when they occupy the property. So he doesn't have any sales costs. He does have some transaction costs, very, very small ones though, because in his contract, in his paperwork for the tenant buyer to in order to buy the property, he has the buyer actually paying his share of closing costs. There may be a little bit though, some incidentals, but basically the agreement is they're buying the property and they're paying all the closing costs on the purchase. That's part of the agreement to the tenant buyer. So he doesn't have any transaction costs there. Um, he does have uh, capital gains. So any gain he had on the property, uh, since it's gonna be more than a year, I'm not a tax professional, go definitely get tax advice on this. But in this case, I modeled it as a long-term capital gain because he owned the property for more than a year. And so he's paying long-term capital gains on any of the proceeds. Plus, because this was a rental property and he was depreciating the property over that period of time that he owned it, he does have depreciation recapture. So when I do the math for him selling this property to a tenant buyer after three years, we are taking into account sales costs, which there are none. Transaction costs, which really there are none because the buyer's paying for it, tenant buyer's paying for it. Uh, the depreciation recapture and also the capital gains. So those are all being accounted for. So basically he's gonna find these properties He's going to acquire them, put tenant buyers in them. Three years later, the tenant buyer is going to cash him out. He's going to take that additional money and reinvest it. And he's going to do this, I believe I set it up for six years. I'm sorry, five years, 60 months. 
I set it up for five years. So for five years, he's going to be the ultimate creative real estate investor while still working his job full-time at the uh, mobile phone company. He's going to work that, you know, making $30,000 a year, spending all the $30,000. He's living off of that money. He's not really, he's not using any of that money to invest. He's basically living his full lifestyle there, but he is taking the money he has from his investments and he's reinvesting that into additional properties. At 61 months, he, he flips a switch. He says, look, yeah, Sam is a gangster. That's right. I mean, really, he's, he's monopolizing his unique skill, right? He knows I am a sales professional. I love talking to people. I love building rapport. By the way, this is not me, in case you're wondering. I'm like an introvert. Don't like talking to anybody. People are like, hey, can I call you on the phone? I'm like, no. What, email me what you want. We'll talk that way. Um, but Sam is like hardcore. He's like, I love talking to people. I love building rapport. I love hearing about their challenges and trying to find a win-win solution where they get what they want. I get what I want. If we don't come to an agreement, that's fine. You have all of your other options. But if you, if this works for you, I can do this. And I'm going to basically buy these properties creatively. Okay. And I was going somewhere before I got distracted. Oh, 61 months. So Sam decides, okay, here's the challenge with buying property subject to. When you go in and you agree to buy a property subject to where the seller deeds you the property and the loan remains in their name, it makes you a little bit uneasy because the loan is not in your name. And the lender can, at their discretion, because of the due on sale or due on transfer clause in the actual documents, they can... The lender can say, I want to actually call this loan due. Because the seller is not allowed to transfer ownership of the property to another person without the, the lender being able to. They're not required to, but they have the right to say, hey, listen, we loaned you this money. We didn't loan Sam the money. And the collateral for the uh, loan was this property. And if Sam doesn't pay, we are going to have to foreclose. But we, we thought you were a good credit risk. We don't know Sam. We didn't pull any credit report on him. We don't know his situation. We don't know if he can afford this property. And so we have the right, not the obligation, we have the right to call this loan due. And so Sam says, hey, listen, I don't know if I want to have these creative financing type loans, buying properties subject to, where these loans are out there for a very long period of time, which is one of the reasons why Sam chooses to sell the properties on a lease option or lease purchase because he knows that he's going to hold the property for a short period of time, but then he's going to get out of the property. He's going to sell it to the tenant buyer. So Sam has discussed this with his attorney and he's comfortable with that risk that the lender could, if they wanted to decide to, you know, call the loan due and he's comfortable with that risk, but he doesn't want to do that long-term. It's not like he's going to acquire, you know, five properties and let these properties just sort of like pay off for the duration. Is it possible he could get in a situation where nothing happened and those loans could last for 30 years until they were paid off? Sure. Absolutely. But he doesn't want to take that risk. He's not willing to. So what he decides to do is he says, listen, I'm going to be creative financing guy for the next five years, 60 months. And then in month 61, I'm going to take the proceeds I have from these properties. I, I call it popping when, you know, you have a tenant buyer actually um, close on a property. They, they exercise their option or they decide to exercise their rights to the purchase agreement and they decide to buy the property from Sam. 
And so I call them, you get pops. You know, you get cash flow and then you get pops at the end when the property sells and you have a little, a little chunk of money. Basically, the, any appreciation you had, you know, minus the debt pay down you had, minus your taxes and um, your depreciation recapture and stuff like that. And so he's going to get, you know, chunks of money coming in after a while. And so he's going to take these chunks of money and he's going to convert them to 20% down rental properties after month 61. So month 60, that's the last month he would consider buying any properties. Month 60, buying any properties creatively, subject to. Month 61, Sam is going to go in there and he's going to go buy the properties with 20% down using the proceeds he acquired from doing these deals subject to. And he's going to keep those. He's not going to put tenant buyers in there. He's going to basically pick properties that would be good long-term rentals, properties where the ratio of the rent to price are a little bit better than what he was getting just randomly looking for deals. If you think about this, What's the number one criteria Sam has in order to do the deals he wants to do? They have to be willing to sell it to him subject to. He's not trying to find the perfect rental. He's like, look, if you're willing to sell me the property, deed it to me where I actually make payments on your loan, that's my number one criteria. And if he had a lot of deal flow, he might get more selective. He might say, well, I'm only willing to do ones that have this amount in profit or this amount in monthly cash flow, or have this great loan on it. But in his case, he's like, look, I have very little money. So the number of these deals I'm going to have coming across my desk are going to be really low. So I'm not being super picky about the type of deals I get. I might be buying properties that are a little bit wacky. You know, they may not be the most ideal property to have as a rental. But the ones he's buying with 20% down those, he has, the, he has the selection of the entire MLS. He could pick of the best properties out there. And so he decides for the early on ones, I'm going to have, you know, whatever comes across. And for these other ones, I'm going to pick slightly better ones. So they have slightly better rent to price ratios. Now, on the ones where he's buying creatively, he is putting tenant buyers in there. And the interesting thing about tenant buyers are, usually with tenant buyers, you can get a small premium on rent, right? A little bit more than what fair market rent is. Not crazy much more, but you know, you're getting the top of the rent range because you know, rents are, the rents are, rents are not exact, right? Everyone knows that, right? Rents are not like, you know, to the penny, you know, it could be, I don't know, you know, 1200 to 1300, 1200 to 1350, you know, 1800 to 2000, you know, it could be somewhere in that range. And so when you're doing a property to a tenant buyer, you're definitely going to be at the high end of the range, if not a tiny bit above. And they're usually paying you an option fee. Okay. So when Sam goes and buys his 20% down properties, they have a little bit better cash flow. Not amazing. We can show you some numbers to that. Okay. So let me go through some of the numbers for what Sam does. Oh, and let me, let me continue my thought here. So Sam starts buying 20% down properties at month 61. And he's got to kind of like bridge the gap while the 20% down properties that he's buying get to the point where their cash flow is enough to support him and his $2,500 a month that he wants to see in retirement. Ultimately, he wants to make more. I mean, I think a lot of folks, they're like, they've got their you know, phase one of financial independence where they've got enough to replace their bare minimum living expenses. Then phase two is, you know, you've got enough to live your ideal lifestyle. This is kind of like the phases of financial independence that I talk about. And then phase three is where you have 
two times your ideal lifestyle coming in in monthly income. That gives you a buffer in case you have a significant market decline and you're not moving back a step or two. And then once you have more than two times your, um, you know, your monthly income, your, desire, your, um, your ideal monthly income coming in, then that's when, in my opinion, you start looking at giving back and, and you know, being uh, you know, much more giving with your money. But you want to take care of yourself first. Some people have different philosophies. That's how I look at financial independence numbers. And so Sam really is trying to get to that minimum where he's making $2,500 a month. Once he gets to that point, he's going to quit his job at the mobile phone company. He's like, I'm done. It takes time. It takes effort to go and buy these properties creatively. You got to you know, hustle, go out there or spend money on marketing. And you got to go meet with sellers. You got to make presentations. You got to follow up. Um, you've got to go find tenant buyers. You got to market for them. You got to find tenant buyers. So it's, it's effort. It's work. And so he wants to get to the point where he can quit his job with the mobile phone company. And then once he gets and he starts acquiring these 20% down rentals, then really he's living off of savings a little bit while he's waiting for the rents on the 20% down properties to kind of increase enough so that they provide that $2,500 a month. And so that's what we're going to see when we look at some numbers. So let's drill down and take a look at some stuff. All right. So I'll show you where I'm going. This is the scenario I made for Sam. I'm going to go to the summary first. All right, so I think I covered all this. It earns $15 an hour, $2,500 a month, $30,000 a year. Doesn't save any of his paycheck. We talked about that. Doesn't own a home. He rents a couple of roommates. He starts with $3,000 saved in a checking account. Oh, and by the way, Sam does not believe in the stock market. So in other story times, we've talked about people that have kind of kept their money in the stock market while they're accumulating balances and saving for down payments. And when they start getting a lot of money after they've owned their rentals for a while and they're kind of just putting money away, a lot of those folks have saved their money in the stock market. We've made the stock market rate of return variable to show them that, yeah, you can have market corrections and you know, it doesn't always go super smooth. In this case, Sam says, I don't believe in the stock market. I'm keeping it in a checking account. And so Sam is earning 1% on any money he has in his all-in-one account, which is really just a fancy checking account. Uh, we talked about buying homes creatively subject to, putting tenant buyers in there, getting small rebates in the form of an option fee. Uh, tenant buyers cash him out in 36 months. We talked about that. Buys the property subject to for the first 60 months. And then month 61, he starts converting the proceeds of tenant buyers cashing him out into 20% down long-term rentals. And he stops working for the mobile home company as soon as he achieves FI. Okay, so here's just a, a really brief overview of his net worth. You can see early on, he starts with very little net worth. You know, when he acquires his first property, he has a little bit of a, uh, a little equity boost because he's, he's basically able to acquire properties with the smallest amount of equity, not a lot. And he has that money in his, uh, in his account. And so that grows slowly over time. And here's month 60 when he starts thinking about stop buying creatively and he goes to the other stuff. And then over time, his net worth continues to grow. So really, he could, in theory, take out more money than he is in this model. Okay. Here's the account balance. This is the amount of money he has in his bank account. I'm going to zoom in so we can see some stuff. So he has very little money in his account. Very, 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 very little money. And this is the scary part, right? Like I mentioned this before. In my opinion, he is definitely operating way, way, way too close to the boat. In my opinion, when you buy a rental property, you should have six months of principal interest, taxes, insurance, HOA, and PMI, all of the expenses of running the property in an account, ideally a savings account um, or checking account, 
so that if something happens to your property, like COVID, and you have some vacancy or rent moratoriums or eviction moratoriums, um, where you need to support your properties over a period of time, or you have a large unexpected repair, um, I think you should have reserves. Sam does not. He is definitely operating super, super tight, super tight. Okay. So he's doing this and, you know, even a year in month 12, oops, sorry, month 12, he's only got less than 6k in his bank account. You know, he's really operating super tight, using his money in order to acquire properties creatively, operating super tight to the bone, in my opinion, and then kind of acquiring stuff. It's not really until month 60. At month 60, he's got uh, 118000 a little less than $120,000 uh, that he saved up. And then he starts acquiring 20% down properties. And he lowers his balance on his account. He gets down to the point where he's back down to $34,000, $35,000 after he starts acquiring 20% down properties. And he has more properties kind of popping. The tenant buyer is actually closing on properties. And he's starting to use that in order to acquire more. And eventually, he starts building up such that he has, looks like at the peak here, just about uh, $460,000 or so. And that's uh, month 95, which, uh, what is that? Is that... Uh, Seven years from now, eight years from now, somewhere in there. Eight times 12, it would say times 12, uh, 96. So right around eight years, okay? That's the peak of how much he has in his account. And then he starts living off of the rents coming in from whatever tenant buyer properties are left, which there aren't very many, um, if any at all at that point. And then any of the 20% down properties and his savings. So he's making up the difference from his savings and his savings is declining. And in a market where, he doesn't see rents go up or some properties go against him or he has some unexpected things like that. He, he might actually have this not work out. And I ran versions of the scenario because there's some randomness going on here. I ran some versions of his story where it didn't work out well for Sam because he's operating really, really close where he could run out of money if properties go against him or something like that. And Gian says, so after having six months, PITI, it's actually PITI, Principal Interest Taxes Insurance, HOA and PMI. It's not just PITI. Um, but I'm not really getting super technical about that, but yes. Uh, reserves, you don't save percentages for vacancies, maintenance, CapEx. That is not true. So after you have your six months, principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and HOA, and PMI, uh, you do continue to set aside money for vacancy, and you do continue to set aside money for maintenance. Because the maintenance is something different. These are reserves and CapEx. Yep. So we typically do that. And we're going to have a discussion about this because this may be one of the points where Brian and I disagree. So I think we're uh, August, October 7th or something like that. I'm doing a whole class on um, why everything you've been taught, everything you've been taught about deal analysis is wrong. Um, there's a whole discussion about reserves in there. And so we may discuss that some more at that point. Okay. So basically you can see this count balance goes down and eventually gets to the point where it turns the corner you know, maybe his properties get paid off and you could see his account balance start to rise when he does that. Here's how many properties he's, he's owning at any given time. So I'm going to zoom in here. Eventually, he gets to the point where steady state for him is he owns five 20% down rental properties. That's the end game for him. That's where he wants to be. Okay. But early on, he basically acquires one property in month one. It takes him till month four in order to be able to buy, find a second property. And then month seven, he acquires his third. Month, whatever this is, 10, he acquires his fourth. Month 16, he acquires his fifth. Month 20, he acquires his sixth. Month 22, he acquires his seventh. 
And eventually he gets to the point where he's maxing out at around 14 properties creatively. That's a lot of properties to be managing yourself, got tenant buyers. It's some effort. Okay. So he's sort of doing that. Some of them are selling, buying more. Some of them are selling, buying more. But at month 60, right here, he stops buying creative financing properties and he only buys the 20% down properties. And so he's buying a couple of those. And then eventually the last tenant buyer properties are selling off. He's getting pops from those and eventually gets down to he only has the five 20% down properties remaining. And that's sort of his path. Now, if we ran this again, if we ran the scenario again, uh, it would look differently because the, with the way I set up the rules for this is we made the amount he needed for down payments for buying that property random. So it could be anywhere from zero to 20 plus down. I forget exactly what the upper boundary was, but basically it became random. And if he had enough to be able to buy that property, then he did buy it. If he didn't have enough to buy that property, then he couldn't buy it. And so he was unable to buy a property that month. That's the way I dealt with this. And you could go and make that stricter criteria where it requires a little bit more and slow him down if you think that's unrealistic. You can copy this to your account and do that. Okay. All right. So we talk about those properties. Um, so here's the down payments. I'll show you a zoom in of this. So I'm going to turn off the 20% down ones. And uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to slowly build this up and then you can kind of see it all at one time. Makes it a little easier. So the first property he bought required essentially zero down. And maybe it was that the seller required the tiniest bit of money, but he got enough of that money back from the option fee that really, when I kind of like simplified the math, it was net zero. So he was able to get into the property for free. Okay. That was property number one. Property number two happened a few months later and he was able to get in with nothing down. Property number three though, required a little bit of money, 0.4% of the value of the pro property down. <clears throat> so that one required a little bit of money. Number four, uh, that one was essentially zero, I think. Yep. Uh, number five required some down payment, a little over 3%. Number six required a little over 1%. Number seven looked like zero. Number eight looks like zero. Number nine looks like, you know, two and a half percent. Number 10 looks like maybe a little bit over zero. 11 looks like 6%. See, the further he gets along, he has more than that $3,000. So he could actually take on more deals. He has, he has more tools and more resources in order to say, Mr. Seller, I see you need $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 in order for me to be able to come to an agreement with you where you'd be willing to allow me to buy your property creatively subject to. And the seller says, yes, I would need whatever that is down. And so if he doesn't have that money, can't do the deal. If he does have it, then he could do the deal. And so he's able to do more. Uh, 12 looks like about zero. 13 looks like it's small, less than 2%. 14 looks like it's over 6%. 15 looks like it's about 6%. 16 looks like it's over 4%. 17 looks really high, over 15%. 18 looks really small. 19 looks really small. You know, 20 looks like it's less than five. 21 looks like it's somewhere between five and 10. 22 looks like it's a little less than 15. And then this is where he starts putting 20% down and he's buying properties from the MLS and you could see the down payments for him over time. Okay. 
So that's his situation. That's how he's acquired these properties. If I ran this again, these would be different because it's random. And then appreciation rates, we basically said we could have a range of appreciation on the properties. They could be slightly negative to slightly positive. On average, they're gonna be about 2%. And you could see each property, we could see the appreciation rate of each of the properties and rent appreciation. So rents don't always go up either. They could be slightly negative, they could be slightly positive. Um, the average for this is gonna be about 2% as well on each one of these properties. And so each one is independent. Uh, he's got his expenses from his job. This is some other rules. Personal expenses from you know living, the $2,500 a month he's living on. Uh, and then his sales income from his job. And then he has uh, two rules for buying property subject to and then buying properties at 20% down. This shows you exactly what he purchased the properties for and what month he bought them for and what month he sold them for. And then the last ones he bought are still owned. He still owns these five. And so when does he achieve his goal? And his goal is deceptive. If you've seen these goal charts before in other stories, it looks like he's able to get to the point where he's achieved his goal while he's still buying these properties subject to. But really he's not because he's not keeping these properties long-term. He's only keeping them for three years. And so the rents he's getting on them, while they may be great cash flowing properties, he's liquidating them and selling them and getting pops. And then he's got to convert those to subject to 20% uh, down properties. And so eventually he dips back below this line when he starts selling off enough of the properties, he doesn't have enough cash flow. And then here he's got a little bit, he's got enough toward his goal, you know, 58% toward his goal. And eventually once his properties look like they start getting paid off, then he's able to achieve his goal and a lot more. He's able to leave you know, 200% of his target income um, right there, basically, according to this. But it's a while out. So when does he actually uh, achieve financial independence? Basically, three years in. If he's willing to use his sales skills, he's able to achieve financial independence, stop working at the mobile phone company, focus on his real estate investing, his creative real estate investing, really early on. Now, as I've been saying this whole time, though, if I ran this thing 10 times, not every one of them looks like this. There are some times when he doesn't make it. He has to go back to work. He doesn't have enough money to support him. No, he doesn't have enough reserves. So this is a, you know, take a shot on goal. You're going really aggressive sort of model. Okay. All right. So that's where that is. I know I promised, Gian, I, I think I promised I was going to go look at maintenance numbers, like your months of reserves. Let's go do that. And then I'll answer any questions. We'll, I'll, I'll kind of end up with some questions. I mean, I could go through the whole blueprint and we could lo look through any month, any scenario. You know, we could look at cash flow and paying down loans and whatever you want to do. But I'm going to definitely show you a chart for number months of reserves. So this is a chart showing you how many months of reserves you have. It basically takes um, your total account balances and it divides by any operating expenses, any mortgage payments, and any expenses you have from rules, including like, you know, what it costs you to live for your thing. and says, how many months could I live off of how much money I have in my accounts? So if I've got a million dollars and my burn rate is, you know, $100,000 a month, then it says you could live for 10 months, okay? So this shows you the number of months of reserves. And you can see early on, he doesn't have much. 0 0.67, 0 0.5, point, you know, one point, you know, whatever it is, it's all really, really low months. So not even a full month for a lot of these, it takes him till month 90 or 59 to get to the point where he has 7.48 months of reserves. And then it drops down as he acquires his 20% properties. 
know, when he's still acquired his 20% property, he's still not operating. Yeah, scary slim reserves is right. That's exactly correct. But eventually, he gets to the point where he's got some decent reserves. You know, he's got 12 months of reserves. Eventually, he peaks out at like 38 months of reserves. And then for a while, he's dwindling his reserves as he's supplementing what he's not quite getting from the cash flow on the 20% down rentals until he gets to the point where, you know, he gets back down to like eight months reserves and then it really kicks into overdrive and he starts building back up again. Okay. Any questions on this? I've got any chart you want to see and we can go from there. So Hunter says, do you have clients who are combining Nomad with lease options? Could those both, both work together well? Hunter, it's interesting that you ask. Because if you have come to the class where we teach how to do the entire nomad strategy using just $3,000, it literally is what you're asking about. And so what the model is, that class is like, um, I don't know, how to earn, I think it's actually real estate financial planner 3K. Yeah, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash 3K. And it's got a class called how to acquire multi-million dollar real estate investing portfolio starting with just $3,000. And the brief kind of like summary of what's in that class is you buy a property with very little down for your first property. And when you buy your first property, then you live there for a year as a nomad. You then convert it to a tenant buyer rental. Instead of a regular rental, you put a tenant buyer in there. You get an option fee from that tenant buyer. You use that option fee as the down payment in order to acquire your next property. And so really you don't need any more than that first down payment to acquire the property. And then I walk you through the math in excruciating detail on acquiring every property until you get to the point where the tenant buyers are popping out and you have enough to buy 20% down properties and you're able to acquire even more than the one a year where you're moving into the properties. And this was a super popular topic a couple of years ago when I first came up with it. I wrote a book on it too. And I don't even think these books are available anymore. I used to give away as Christmas gifts. But here's the book, uh, How to Acquire Multi-Million Dollar Real Estate Portfolio with $3,000. And all I do is like, it's like charts. It's like charts and narrative on like how this all works out doing this. So yes, you could do that. Do I have any clients doing it? No, I do not. Uh, partially because if you can acquire the properties and not do the lease option exits, it's better. This is, is a solution to do it with like very little money, but it is a lot more work and it takes you longer, in my opinion, probably to get to financial independence and it's more involved. And I would say it's more aggressive of a plan, but it could totally work. Laura says, great, spreads- great spreadsheet, James. Um, you should have been a late night talk show host. <laughs> I appreciate that. And you know, we are doing more of these uh, story time things I kind of like the format. I don't know if you guys like the format, but I've been doing more of those. The back window light is a problem. Can't see your face. Yeah, as someone who's like really, really shy, I'm totally okay with you not being able to see my face. Um, and someone else complained last time, and, and the, the, what I said to them is the, uh, the, the quality of the content is really, really good. The production quality of the videos, not so good. Definitely low. So, uh, yeah. Uh, CC says, with option fee paid at once and kind of short term, what about the tax on it? So uh, I don't know if this varies state to state. I know for a fact in Colorado, 
you don't pay taxes on the option fee until the tenant buyer either exercises their option or they actually forfeit their option fee by um, moving out of the property and abandoning it. And so in that particular case, you don't pay taxes on the option fee until either they purchase and you get a big chunk of money where it's easy enough to pay taxes or they walk away from the property and you get to keep the option fee. And at that point, you probably need to pay tax on it. Um, so yes, that is something to be considered. But, um, and Cece says, seems a bit like flipping. Um, it is sort of like flipping. It's like a delayed flip, right? You're buying a property, you're putting a tenant buyer in there and it takes you a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, however long it takes for you to find the tenant buyer that actually exercises their option, closes on the purchase and buys the property from you for you to be able to exercise, to, to, to see that, realize that money from the flip. So it's not like a six month flip where you buy a property, do all the work, put it up for sale. And you know, a couple of months later, you actually get a check. It's like a delayed flip where you get paid some of your money up front, the option fee, and some cash flow over time. And then at the end, you get a little bit of a chunk for doing it. So yeah, it's sort of like a, a flipping sort of thing. Um, and PS, this is in the tenant lease option fee. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Hunter says, very cool. I'll go watch that class. You're very welcome. You should have all, you should have access to that class out there. And I think it's available for everybody, but um, you should definitely have access to all of them too. Uh, and CC says, oh, excellent. Yep, you're very welcome. Well, I thought I was going to get questions on let's drill down into charts and look at some detail and stuff, but uh, apparently I, I did not get any of those. Um, let me see if there's any charts that I find particularly interesting while people think of any last questions. Uh, let's see. Talked about that. Yeah, maybe I'll look at this. Return in dollars. Let's take a look. So this is interesting to me, at least. I'll stack them and I'll t turn some off. So basically, Sam, who's earning $2,500 a month by acquiring these properties creatively subject to, um, is, is getting the benefits of owning a bunch of rental properties. I mean, as many as like 16 at a time. And so you can see his total appreciation in terms of dollars on this entire portfolio of properties is pretty substantial. I mean, this is per month. And so like early on, let's look, look, look at the first like 60 months or so. So early on, you know, he's getting like $1,000 a month, depending on if the property value went up a lot or a little or negative. And he's seeing like a whole bunch of this stuff increasing. You know, in this month, he saw $11,000 in that month from cash flow, from uh, appreciation on that property. Now he's going to re realize this when he actually sells them, but he's getting that. As far as paying down the loan, he's seeing like a certain amount per month. Like right here, he's seeing... Uh, between all the properties, he's paying down $15.49 per month on a loan. And that's because the tenant buyer is actually paying the mortgage, but that's how much the mortgages are going down. And so you can see he's like, you know, almost like saving $6,000 a month almost on some of these. His cash flow on the properties kind of increasing here. And then his cash flow from depreciation. These are the tax benefits of owning the property. And when you add all these together, this is them stacking visually. You can see, I mean, $5,000 is this line right here. You know, $15,000 a month is what he's seeing on a lot of these things. And this is during his like acquisition period where he's buying the properties and then lease option exiting them. By the time you get to like month 100 or so, uh, then you've gotten rid of all your lease option properties and you're just left over your 20% down. And so these are the 20% down properties after that. So... All right, guys. Well, it is uh, end of story time. 
Candace says, great story time. You're very welcome. You're very, very welcome. So if, uh, if that was helpful for you, please let me know. Otherwise, I will try to get this recording up for premium members. So they can go ahead and access, watch this again. Um, they can copy the scenario to their accounts, change any of the assumptions, whatever it is. Uh, David says, uh, great stuff. You're very welcome. So thanks, everybody, for coming on. I do appreciate it. We will hopefully get the recording up. Uh, Hunter says, thank you. You're very welcome. So uh, thanks again, for everybody, for coming. I will talk to you all soon. You, Candace loves the charts. Yeah, I love the charts too. I'm a big chart guy. Uh, thanks, everybody. I will talk to you all soon. Have a great day. Bye-bye for now.